The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Well, as we come to your word here this morning and to this topic that's in front of us, we keep fresh in our minds that you are our only hope. It would be easy, understandable, if we listen to what this passage is about and kind of set out to do it, and we'd fail. So keep us, Lord, near you. Keep us crying out to you for help. And with you, with your help, hoping in you, will you help us to walk after what the passage has in front of us here today for our good, for our growth, for our joy, and for your honor. So speak and shape us and grow us up and be our help, the one we hope in. Thank you, Lord. Amen. For the Christian, life in this world is often a struggle. That point has come up often in this book of 1 Peter. We've been studying it through, and we've seen Peter often refer to us as exiles here, and just point out that that means we're often ostracized or even persecuted, or if not that, it's sometimes just overlooked and ignored, even laughed at. We love and we serve and we care for others and in some way or another we are rejected just because we're Christians and that does not line up with what the world values. So there's that. But there's also another type of struggle that we face here. It's related in the end, but it starts off quite differently. The struggle we each individually face against our own sin. The natural human tendency that's in all of us to turn away from God and to walk through life pursuing our own desires and our own interests and our own feelings. We struggle with sin and with particular sins long before we become Christians, even though we may not be aware of that. But we continue to struggle with sin even after becoming a Christian and would do so even if there weren't any other Christians in all of the world all around us. We're sinners all by ourselves. But of course, we aren't all by ourselves and the struggle against our sin inevitably becomes harder because all around us is a world that wants to pull us, wants to incline us, lures us. We're called out of that world. We're called to stand apart from it as we walk in newness of life as new creations. That was one of the implications that we touched on just a little bit last week as we walked through the end of 1 Peter 3 and saw that baptism going into the grave, into death, and coming out to walk in newness of life. That was the theology behind baptism that came from Romans chapter 6. We addressed that last week and saw how we are to walk in newness of life and empowered by Christ who is mediating for us from the right hand of God to gain for us help, the mercy and grace we need in our, in our struggle. So helped, encouraged, empowered, and yet there is a struggle. There is a battle. And that's what we're going to be looking at today at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 4. 
going to read the passage, 1 through 6, and then draw two observations from it. And they are extremely lopsided observations. The first one is probably 80%, and the second one is just 20% of the, of the remaining time. So it's lopsided. The first part is the, is the heavier, more important part for us this morning. So let me read 1 Peter 4, 1 to 6, and we'll look into it. Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. 1 Peter 4, 1 to 6. So two observations. Here's the first one, the main one. Reckon yourself to have died in Christ and therefore to be dead to sin but alive to God. I'll say that again. Reckon yourself to have died in Christ. And therefore, because you have died in Christ, to be dead to sin, but alive to God. Verse 1 begins by connecting this passage back to what we saw in chapter 3, verse 18, as it talks about Christ's suffering. It uses the same little phrase there. And as you recall, up in verse 18, Peter made clear, by suffering, he's talking about the crucifixion, the, the death and burial of Jesus. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spiritual realm. That's the path that Jesus traveled, the path that Noah then traveled into the, the flood, into the waters and the ark, and then back out the other side. It's the path that we travel in baptism, the theology we talked about last week in Romans 6. Christ suffering and dying, that's what's behind our verse 1. With that in mind, since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, that is, he died, went into the grave, dealt with sin, you now, and here's the command, the main command for the whole passage here, arm yourself. A command that's taken from a military context, which strongly implies there is a battle at hand. It's similar to something we've already seen, but it goes a bit further. Back in chapter 1, verse 13, you may recall the gird up the loins of your mind command, similar there. And incidentally, that also went directly into a discussion about do not be conformed to the passions of your former self. So we've seen something like this before, but this goes a step further. That was prepare for action. This is prepare for battle. How so? How do you prepare? Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, or literally, with the same thought, the same perspective, like that of Christ, 
who died in the flesh, who died to the world, that way of thinking, that idea, that, that mindset, adopt it and then adapt it for me, grab it tight and then embrace it. Arm yourself. So like Christ, I'm thinking like Christ, I died. Like Christ, I was buried. Like Christ, the old me is gone. That's the way of thinking that I'm supposed to grab hold of. That's, that's Romans 6, thinking that through for me. That's Galatians 2.20, if you're familiar with it. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Christian, that's what's true of you and me. That's how you and me must think. For, here's why that matters, continuing on in the verse, for the one who has suffered in the flesh, who has died like Christ, see that phrase again there, has ceased from sin. Which doesn't mean is now sinless. We never become sinless, and the rest of the passage is a discussion about fighting against sin, so it doesn't mean that, it can't mean that. Rather, this is Peter's way of saying what Paul said in Romans 6 right after he discussed baptism there. We've got similar passages here. Baptism followed by this. In Romans 6, baptism followed by the same idea. You're perhaps familiar with Romans, but if, if you're not, look at Romans 6 and jot this down and look at it later. But Romans 6, verses 6 to 14, Paul elaborates on the ramification of being united with Christ and what entails, what follows from that. And he says there, if I'm, if I'm united with Christ, he continues on, I have been, this body of sin might be brought to nothing. I would be no longer enslaved to sin. Or verse 10 in Romans, the death Christ died, he died to sin. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Or verse 11 in Romans, here's the kicker for us this morning. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's Peter's point. So let me pause right there and kind of say, I myself, I don't, I don't know if you feel this, I myself feel like I'm mentally having trouble tracking with this and I wrote it. So, hear this clearly. We must prepare for battle, arm ourselves, by reckoning something to be true up here. Reckoning it. Considering it true. Counting it as the way things are. I am dead. I have died to sin ceased from it. You have to consider that true of you. Which, of course, immediately in saying that implies that you might not. If, if I were to say to a married guy, consider yourself married, count yourself, reckon yourself as married, what I'm saying is that it's also possible for married guys to live like they're single. 
But they're not, and they shouldn't, and they can't for very long without there being consequences. This is true of you. Reckon it as true. This is true of you. Count it as so. I'm dead to sin. I have ceased from it. It's over. Don't set this aside. Don't, don't miss it. Don't avoid it. This is a great weapon. This is what Paul says, what Peter says, and Paul both. We're supposed to take in hand. This is a great weapon to help us in the fight against this important battle against sin. So reckon yourself, Christian, to be this. This is part of your identity as a child of God. Like Christ died, I died, crucified and buried with him and raised to God. That's me too, and sin has no hold on me. Sin is not my master. It does not define me. It used to, but I'm not its slave. It's, it's other. That's the old me. It's done. And when you embrace that as true, it leads to different outcomes. Verse 2. I don't live the rest of my earthly life for the sake of indulging human passions. The, the logic flows right from verse 1 into verse 2. I don't live. I, that old me is dead. I'm dead to sin. And what comes from that, when I grab a hold of that, what comes from that is that I don't live the remaining days of my life here indulging human passions, but instead I live for the will of God. I'm raised to a new life in Christ. Human passions, we talked about this before back in chapter 1, are not just like strong emotions. We, we sometimes use it like that. We talk about somebody who's passionate. We mean they're really emotive. They're kind of alive. Passions are the urges and the desires, the wants and the feelings of a person. Human passions opposite God's passions, if you will. And we in Christ are not to live for the human will, for human passions, but for God's in instead. But notice this is not a command, it's actually a consequence. He doesn't say in verse 2, command, so do not live the rest of your time. He says, grab a hold of this weapon, verse 1, so as not to live the rest of your time. This is the consequence, not the command. The battle is to not live life here for human passions in pursuit of what we want, how we feel, what we are inclined towards, but instead to live for what God wants from us. And how we win that battle is by first, verse 1, arming ourselves, considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. We must fight and win that battle. Because verse 3, graphic examples in verse 3 of the old human desires, the old human urgings. And notice he's giving us some examples here which maybe they don't fit you in your particular spot in life. They're very common and they're very much about the pursuit of pleasure. But if these are not the human passions that tempt you, then, then in your mind we focus on what, which human passions are the ones that challenge you, that do tempt you. 
But he lists several things here in verse 3, common in the world and no longer appropriate for us. The Gentiles, the world wants such things, sinful desires indulged in sensuality. Sexual pleasures pursued without godly bounds. Passions fed, ruled by one's feelings. This is so much of where the world lives because sadly they don't have anything else to judge by. The only thing the world has to judge by what is right and wrong is does, does it feel right? And if it really, really feels right, then it must be. Majority of us all agree on it and find it desirable. Well, then it certainly must be. That's how the world lives. Driven by its passions. And it pursues drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties. All different varieties of essentially the same thing. Different words, but essentially the same picture there. Satisfying one's bodily desires, pleasure attained in altered states. Stimulation in the high. Substance abuse and physical intimacy and free expression of action that's unrestrained and even lastly resulting in lawless idolatry, it says, which, because biblically speaking, all idolatry would be lawless. It's probably not talking about anything biblical. It probably means to point out that sometimes even the things people want is a, are against the law. But they really, really want them and do them anyway. And pursue them, driven on by our passions, by our urgings, by our feelings to the destruction of self and the destruction of society and victimization of others. When you walk down the path of I want it and I feel it, my passions are inflamed and they are let loose. When you walk down that path, we all eventually become a law unto ourselves and do whatever we want, whatever feels good. That's the story of the world and its desires. It is not remotely pleasant, is it? Who, who likes to hear about this? All of that, in some regard, used to be us. When we were part of the world, too. And the point here is enough. Verse 3 says, enough. That's over. That's not us anymore. Notice this is not actually saying anything to them out there. It's talking to us. And saying, that used to be us, and it must not be. Enough. That's the battle that we're facing here. Verse, verse 3 are particular examples of particularly ugly pursuits of pleasure and the particular letting go of my feelings and my urges and my wants and desires. Maybe something else is, is where you're kind of drawn or where you're kind of tempted or, or kind of marks your past. But the point is, whatever it is, human passions are not to be what drives us. The battle is against that urge, that draw, that push. 
There's the fight. Don't be surprised by it. Arm yourself against it. How? Well, you have to reckon this is true. First piece. Start by mentally you embrace this truth. This, this is really easy, I think, for a Christian who's, who's relatively well taught. Anybody who's even grown up in the church is relatively well taught to say like, okay, yep, that stuff's wrong. He was talking about it. I get that. This, the opposite of that would be better. Sure, I get that. And I understand the theology of the baptism. I understand all that. Have you grabbed it? I was a Christian for a long time before I actually, not, not those things in particular, but some of those things, I was a Christian for years before I actually grabbed it and said, wait a minute. No. Almost like, no. I get it's wrong, but I haven't actually said no. <laughs> I'm different. You're different now. And of the old, we have to say, no. And to embrace the truth that I actually can say no. I'm not enslaved to sin. Previously, the old me, before I died, I was a slave. I was bound. And so all I could say was, can we change this? Can we modify this? Can we, can we correct or, or, or alter? And, some, and now I can actually say, N-O, no. Because it's not my master anymore. It's not your master anymore. So mentally, sometimes just mentally you have to say like, oh, Yeah. And embrace that and tell yourself, this is what's true about me. The world says, you be you. You be true to you. Do you feel it? Then go for it. Actually, you should go for it because that would be appropriate. And the answer is, actually, no. That's not me. That's the old me. I have to reject what the world says about me and about everyone else, that we're defined by our strongest feelings and urges. No, your strongest urges and feelings in any moment might just be temptation. You are still a fallen person. You still have flesh. You are still temptable, and you still face one who wants to kill you. God calls you higher. Christ sits at the right hand of God to mediate Holy Spirit help to you to walk in newness of life to fight this fight, and sometimes we just need to mentally grab that truth, and then secondly, as an act of will, take control of your choices and say no. You can. We often say, that's pretty hard, maybe, but you're free in Christ and dead to sin. This is one of the difficult things one of the, the other sides, of the, the other edge of, of the wonderful theology that, that the gospel writers lay in front of us about us being 
weak and about us being low and about us needing God. One of the, the, the flip sides of that that we can sometimes get wrong is that we can sometimes feel like I am too weak, I cannot do anything, and we don't realize I do have a remote with an off button that experiences told me I can push. Do so. I have sovereignty over where I place my computer. Place it in the open. Etc., etc., etc. I can do some things. And sometimes we need to like become aware that I am, I actually am a person who physically is capable and I spiritually have the chain broken. I I can say no to sin. I died in Christ. I'm dead to sin. And a little tip here. This is much, much easier if you are in constant connection with other Christians. Not trying to do it on your own, but you're living with and living openly around other Christians. There's a, there's a lot of encouragement to do the right thing when other people are looking over your shoulder. There's help in that. And we know that, which is why we often run off by ourselves when we don't want to be helped. So I have to mentally embrace something is true, and then I might have to exercise my will and actually do something here. But lastly, and really, ironically, though I just spent time on that, I kind of want to say those things actually are important, but pale in comparison to what I'm about to say. Lastly and most importantly, you have to understand something about how we work as people. If we're going to understand and successfully apply what Peter's calling us to, if we're going to arm ourselves for this fight against sin, against our human urges. Because if you've ever tried, ever tried, and I mean really tried, to do what I just said, if you've ever really tried to reckon yourself dead to sin, that's, that's me, that's where I am. And I understand that, I'm going to grab a hold of that, I'm going to believe it, and then you've tried to actually say no. You've, you've tried that on something that's difficult, that has hooks in you, that's really attractive to you, that's a long-laid track, that's a deep rut in your life. You've, you've tried that, you've, you've taken what I just said about reckoning things as true and exercising my will, you've probably experienced a lot of failure and hopelessness because that strong desire just didn't go away when you told it to. Now what? It didn't go away when you told it to because that's only half the story. It's only half of how we have to arm ourselves. Dead to sin, I died with Christ, dead to sin, must also include alive to God in Christ. In other words, we cannot just live lives of no. No, turn away. No, turn it off. No, step aside. 
That doesn't work. I've tried, you've tried. We know it doesn't work. We cannot live lives of only no. That will fail. We have to live lives of yes. Yes to God. We have to pursue a life full of hope in God more than we pursue a life of not sinning. Track with that. That's, that's important. It's really important. We have to pursue a life of hope in God more than you pursue a life of not sinning. Not sinning is a life of no only. But we have to say no so as to open up our hand or say yes to receive. There's got to be a pursuit of God, not just a pursuit of not sinning. A life of connection to the Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. Now listen to this. What I'm doing from this point is I'm working backwards through the book of 1 Peter. Here I am at the part in Peter where he says, say no, fight. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to touch on everything he's already said to us, which if we were reading this letter would have been within the last few minutes, not the last several months. A life of connection to the Christ who loved me and gave himself for me, that by his wounds I would be healed and brought to his side. The shepherd and overseer of my soul. One who leads me by still waters, who bids me lie down in green pastures, who feeds me in the presence of my enemies who makes me full and at peace in a hostile world. Yes to a life relating to the one who has called me out of darkness into his light, who declared, my, who declared your identity. Not leaving it for us to discover or to decide. He declared of me, of you, chosen race, royal priest, kingdom citizen, my own one, mine, object of mercy, a recipient of astonishing grace when Christ comes for me, an engaged lover who leads me to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. I'm waiting for the inheritance that is kept for me in heaven even at this moment, but while here in this moment, I rejoice with joy in this Christ and I trust him. That's what First Peter backwards has said. God for us, God for you in Christ. He must be our living hope. More than the temporary shallow fun of a dying world. He must be our joy more than the pleasure of getting drunk and having sex. 
more than, than, than the, the, the blessing of earthly riches and luxury and more than human fame and interpersonal power to be given the riches of Christ and to be known by the King. Which one do you want? Because you can't have both. And something in you, Christian, if, if you're a Christian, something in you says, I want him. I can't believe you even asked me that question. Of course I want him. I want him. I want that one. I read all that and something in me says, yes, please. But Steve, what you don't understand is that that's the problem. Is that something in me says, yes, please. But not everything in me says, yes, please. Something in me says, I want the world. But I don't. But I do. But I don't. That's the fight. That's the problem. Help. Exactly. Exactly. Help. Exactly. What do you long for and what do you love? I know what I'm supposed to long for and I know what I sort of love. But God, help. And he says, exactly. I'm here. I'm here for you to mediate to you grace and mercy to help you in the time of need. To pour out on you my spirit who will give you strength to know how I wide, long, high, deep love you, Christian. You need strength for that. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. That doesn't come automatically. It doesn't come easy. You need strength for that. And God says, I'll give it. Ask. Seek. Knock. I give you the spirit when you ask. I never say no when you ask because I want you to know me and how much I love you and how much I'm after you and how much all of this is totally true of you and me for you. We are never meant to say, there's a fight and I got it. We're always meant to say, there's a fight and I can't help. And he says, indeed. Here's my spirit. And I give you my spirit ultimately to give you me. That's often the critical missing element when we go to arm ourselves for some fight against sin. We hear, you, you hear, you, I mean, you're around the church and somewhere you hear something about how sin is wrong, you're supposed to fight against it. You hear the first part of the sermon, you say, like, yeah, but the thing that's often missing is that God, by his spirit at work in my heart, to give me a love that drives out of the loves. I need that, and it's not there. I know. Help. And I give you strength to fight. You're a new creation. You're supposed to say no. You're a new creation. You can say no. And crying out, help to God. His spirit will do a miracle here and make you want him more than that. Make you want to say no. And I don't mean just partially, I mean long for it. To be captured by a beauty that is other than this world. To delight in him and to know his love wide, long, and high and deep for you. To know that in eternity past he chose you and sent Christ to chase you down and secure you and the spirit to grab hold of you and empower you and walk with you. He died to forgive you and rose to relate to you. And he wants to do that right now today. Call out to him for help.
That's what moves a person on in this fight. That's what, that's what gives a person the ability to fight successfully. The love of God deep in our hearts, which is what the gospel is ultimately about. God said no to his son on the cross, that ultimately he could say yes to you every day thereafter. Ask for his spirit to change your heart and reorder your loves to arm you for battle. And when you do, and you turn from sin, if we end up suffering for that at the hands of the world, so be it. Peter already said that would happen. The last time he mentioned Christ's suffering, right before that he talked about how we're going to be maligned for our good behavior in Christ. Okay. 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 But from people, that, that'll come, not from God, from people. That leads us to the second point, which again is going to be very short. The world will react negatively. But judgment is coming. The world will react negatively, but judgment is coming. Verse 4 brings up the world's reaction to us when and as we fight this fight against sin, against our human passions. And notice this is not with any, any word of condemnation directed at the world. This is not us preaching at people out there, they shouldn't be doing this. This is just us addressing it in ourselves. But it says they will be first surprised and then they will malign us, attack us verbally. The maligning we've talked about enough times already that you can kind of picture that. But where it comes from is that there is, an, there is certainly an implied rebuke. It, it is there. Even if we're not trying to give it, there is an implied rebuke. Somebody says, you know, do you, do you like this meatloaf and you don't answer? They know your answer. <laughs> do you want to come with me to the party? No, thanks. Why not? You used to. You were really into this. Why not? There's an implied statement there. They, they get that. And it will lead to maligning. But notice here what's, what's, what's new. Before it leads to maligning, this is worth noting, it first is surprising. It says they're surprised that we don't join them in the flood of debauchery. This is, this is helpful to keep in mind. Why the surprise? Well, think about this from, from the perspective of the other person there, or maybe you are one of these, these other folks who's not a Christian yet, and you say, yeah, that's exactly where I am, but this makes no sense. All that you're talking about makes no sense. They're looking at us and saying, you are talking about saying no to what seems to be the deepest parts of who we are. The world says, you be you, be true to yourself, because it thinks you are that, and 
that's appropriate and right, and you're going to try to like deny that and be somebody else? It makes no sense. And plus, that further means that you're going to deny all the ways that we can think of to pursue fun. That makes no sense. The things we want seem to be true to us, and the things we want are the things that would give us pleasure, and you're saying in both of those things, no and no. Like you're going to live like some altered life that is very odd, and what kind of God is this who's some sort of a cosmic killjoy? Makes no sense. Plus, you used to really be about this, and now you're talking about living in some other world that I can't see, and that seems to make you just at home by yourself miserable. Well, we're out having fun. What? We need to keep that in mind because it is real. It, it does not make much sense. And so we have a genuine bewilderment at first on the other side of, of a relationship here that, that we have something to explain to do with our words and with our lives. To explain some of the theology with our words, yeah, but also to explain with our lives that I'm actually not home by myself miserable. I'm living off of something else, someone else who's invisible. And if this is true, we should be able to outlive the world. I don't mean in length of life, I mean in quality of life. We should be able to outlive the world We have some explaining to do with our words, with our lives, and some praying to do that God would open eyes because it doesn't make any sense just with our explaining. And God must open eyes in large part because everyone faces the judgment. No one gets away from it. This is true for the world and for us. He is ready to judge the living and the dead. Everybody. Dying doesn't get you away from the judgment. I think it's what verse 6 is alluding to. I'll say a little more about that later at another time. Dying doesn't get you away from judgment. Being a Christian doesn't get you away from judgment. Remember chapter 1? We serve a God who judges impartially. We all are going to face the judgment. And we interact with people day after day after day who don't know that and don't think it's real. What are we going to say to them? We have to offer up something to them that is not just a rebuke of a lifestyle implied but it's a commendation of another lifestyle displayed. I don't just say, that's wrong, that's bad. That's what a lot of people think Christians are all about, right? No, 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 no. We aren't actually about no, we're about yes. So the fight against sin is not actually only for us. The fight against sin and for God it's for them, too. As they are totally confused and as they malign us, to be able to explain to them the hope that's within us that shows, actually, I am living. 
Now, I'm me. I have my own personality, and whatever I am is whatever I am. But I'm living, and I'm living with one whom you can live with too. And I'm walking with him, and I know him, and all of this could be true of you too. We are commending the gospel with our lives, giving an answer to those who are about to face the judgment. The gospel makes all the difference in the end, and the gospel can and should make all the difference now for us. So Christian, so brother and sister, there's a fight here that's for our sake, for God's sake, and for other people's sake. And we're called to fight it to be armed. Please, reckon yourself as dead to sin because you died in Christ. And reckon yourself as alive to God because you rose in Christ. And walk in newness of life and enjoy him forever. And commend him to others. Let me pray. Father, would you help us to arm ourselves Help us. We need your spirit work in us to make us different people, to show us your glory, to impress upon us your love. Please do that. Make us new. Refresh us today. Make us effective and gracious testimonies to the world around us that is headed for trouble. We're your people. We look to you for help. You're the one we need. You are our only hope. Thank you, Lord. Amen. As morning dawns and day awakes, to you I bring my need. Oh, gracious God, my source of strength 
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.